Lauren, did you take part in a, a singing event with Genevieve Dingle in London? Yeah, yeah, I thought I recognised your name. Yeah, yeah. And then I thought, no, no, you're in Ireland, it can't be you. So now I know you're in London, I'm putting things together. Oh, oh yeah. hello. <laughs> hello. We're co-authors on that paper, aren't we, I think? We are, yeah, yeah, with the 17 other people. <laughs> So hello and welcome to the Culture File Debate, where this week our panel has assembled to talk about a new place for music in our world, or perhaps a very old one. Maybe we'd pull up short of calling art pharmaceutical, but in the pandemic, along with a sudden appreciation of birdsong, has come a new focus on what it is that art and culture might be in our world. We'd gotten used to the trumpeting of the economic superpowers of activities like music, but when the money went away, the music didn't. In fact, in a lockdown world, we've taken a little time to notice how a snatch of music can make one moment different from the last, to focus on a new place that music has in how we feel and how we feel about the world. And as with so many things we've learned over the last year, like, say, good hand-washing technique, it's fascinating to see whether we're ushering in a change in how we care for each other. None of this has been much of a revelation for our guests this time. They all have, in one way or another, been exploring the values of music outside the standard scale, looking at its place in areas from mental health and physical health to social cohesion, from healing individuals to getting cities well. So our guests tonight are Hannah Davis, who's a musician and researcher as well as a long COVID patient and a member of the Patient-Led Research, a group researching long COVID experience. Hello, Hannah. Hi, thank you for having me. Where are you coming to us from tonight? I'm coming from Rhode Island in the United States. Welcome. Lauren Stewart is Professor of Psychology at Goldsmiths, where in her course Music, Mind and Brain, she's investigated everything from earworms, a slightly less serious form of infection, to the therapeutic aspects of music. Hello, Lauren. Hiya. In Hackney, I believe. Hilary Moss is a music therapist working at the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance in Limerick, researching the place of singing in choirs in a range of health practices. Hi, Hilary. Hi. You're Hi, a local... Yes, I am, yeah. Shane Shapiro is the CEO of Sound Diplomacy, which is a consultancy that researches how to use music in a city's development, including in improvements in physical and mental health for its inhabitants. Good evening, Shane. Thanks for having me. Uh, a pleasure. The word that hovers over almost all the culture file debates we've been having uh, recently is COVID. We wanted to hear a story of COVID. So Hannah Davis is going to tell us a little bit about the disease from the inside, which surprisingly is not one of the perspectives we hear very often. As an artist and a musician, uh, it must be particularly troubling that there are so many sensory effects of the disease. We hear about what it does to people's lungs and hearts, but there are hearing issues and tinnitus a lot of things to, to trouble you. Exactly. So I got sick in New York City on March 25th. Um, I was 32. I, you know, I wasn't kind of considered one of the at-risk people. And I'm a generative musician, and I had actually planned on kind of spending the, the lockdown recording an album using generative techniques. I have a program that translates books into music based on the emotional underlying content, and I was going to be making a bunch of pieces 
based on that. But um, one evening on March 25th, I um, was just chatting via text message with a friend and realized I couldn't read the text message. I didn't understand what it said. And it turned out that um, an hour later, I, I checked my temperature and realized I had a fever. And that was my first understanding that I had COVID. I actually had a primarily neurological manifestation of COVID. I had very severe brain fog. I had cognitive dysfunction, which I still am dealing with today. I had memory loss, which I'm still dealing with today. I had very new onset sound and light sensitivity, um, really bad tinnitus, voice changes, um, tremors. I had kind of the, the stereotypical symptoms of the cough and um, shortness of breath and, and that kind of thing. But it really interfered with everything, you know, not only my daily life, but my ability to listen to music. I absolutely couldn't play or practice music. And I felt very separated from that part of life for a really long time. Um, and I'm almost a year out and I'm at 11 months right now and I'm still dealing with a lot of these side effects. Which is proper long COVID. And, and I mean, one of the things you were finding was that as uh, the way the disease was manifesting for you, you weren't necessarily getting much attention within the uh, medical establishment, which led to the formation of patient-led research. Tell us about what, what that organization does. Exactly. So, um, I, you know, I was sick for a month before I joined a support group. And at the time, it was it was considered just a re respiratory illness that was fixed in two to three weeks. In the first wave in March in New York, you know, so many, even people I knew in real life were getting sick and then not recovering. And so I joined the body politics support group. And within that, they had a kind of a data nerds channel. And since I worked with data, I joined that group. And um, it's a very, very confusing illness to just get sick and then never get better. Um, so we were all just very confused. Um, and we put out a survey just to get understanding and answers for ourselves first. So we put out the first report on long COVID in May, um, detailing what recovery actually looks like. We found that most people had cognitive um, difficulties. It wasn't just me. We then formed a, a more official research group and worked to advocate for the recognition and research for long COVID with the WHO, with the NIH in the U.S. and the CDC. Um, we've consulted for the NICE guidelines and just kind of getting the awareness out there that not only is this happening, but this is happening to a very high percentage of, of people and um, there's no age difference. One of the things we found was that there's no age difference in the cognitive dysfunction and memory loss across all ages from 18 to over 70. Lauren Stewart, you've worked a lot with them um, using therapies to uh, help with cognitive problems. I mean, we've heard one of the common problems with COVID has been the anosmia and it emerged there that there were useful training that that people could do, that, that there were exercises which might bring back function. I suppose one of the areas that you have touched on is, is this other aspect which COVID brings with it, is this sense of isolation that people have been experiencing. And you have looked at how music works in group formation and, and helps people with social cohesion, which is one of our um, comorbidities in the, in the COVID era. Yeah, that's right. I have. Um, so I've been investigating the utility of, of group singing, actually, as a, a useful approach. In fact, um, in a setting in, in Africa, actually, in West Africa. So uh, working with um, uh, women during pregnancy to 
alleviate symptoms of anxiety and depression, which, of course, is something that, you know, uh, during the pandemic is has been rife, regardless of what kind of uh, geographical context you're in. Um, what we're utilising in that piece of research, it's uh, based in the Gambia, where there are traditional cultural practices around using group singing and participatory music to support women, particularly uh, around issues to do with pregnancy and after birth. So it's a project where there's already existing culturally embedded practices that we have shaped um, into an intervention that can reduce anxiety and depression during pregnancy because we know that actually um, the knock-on effects of anxiety and depression can have uh, uh, an impact on the developing foetus. And the principles that uh, are underneath the intervention are really looking at how music can lift mood, but also how it can promote social cohesion. And there seems to be something quite special about making music with others and blending your voice with others that seems to instill this sense of togetherness. I'm also sort of in the middle of a, a study that's based mostly in the UK where we're comparing what people say about missing their group activity and we're comparing people who are missing their choir their community choir and people who are missing their exercise groups to try to get a handle on is there something special or different about what music is doing and um, in community choirs that can't be replicated online of course many people have continued their choir activities online but we're it's an interesting the pandemic in sort of cutting people off from their usual being together in a physical space um, with each other. It's a useful lens through which to ask the question of, is there something special about that experience that can't be replicated through technology? And that gives us the chance to say, well, what is it about group singing that might be promoting this social bonding and, and why? That they are indeed some of the questions I wanted to ask, uh, specifically about whether you were beginning to find that Zoom-mediated singing was somehow... What, what were the qualities that really made it different from meeting in a room? Or, or is that just an, uh, an illusion? Um, there's lots of different components to that. I mean, the technological questions are one key component, you know, and I think central to, to that is the fact that, of course, you can't hear other people. I'm in a community choir and we, we've tried to do this, but of course you can hear yourself or you can hear the backing track of the choir director, but you can't hear your voice blending with other people's voices. And people are reporting that that's what they don't really like. They don't really like hearing themselves as a disembodied sort of voice. But then people mention all sorts of other things like, you know, physical contact or... I think there's something quite special about group singing, which is that even if you haven't chatted a lot to people and got to know them, the experience of having sung together makes you feel like you know them. So that might be different in other things. But actually, I think that's a bit different in a choir setting. The actual act of making music together really does seem to instill these kind of social bonds that might be a little bit different to other group activities. Hilary Moss, this is an area that you particularly work in. And I mean, your work uh, precedes COVID, but it, it seems like it was a, a sort of one of those uncanny predictions of COVID because you looked at how group singing and, and choral work could improve social connection 
as Lauren is suggesting there, but also had respiratory health, uh, positive effects and cognitive stimulation. It's quite uncanny how useful those sort of treatments might be for long COVID sufferers, for instance. Absolutely. I'm, I'm working with a team in, in the University of Limerick on singing health and well-being. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Oshin Kahalan, is kind of leading the lung health aspect and obviously linking with other researchers internationally who are looking at singing and lung health. And there has been quite a large body of work already, um, particularly around COPD and other respiratory illnesses. But I suppose the interesting thing is looking at obviously long COVID and the respiratory aspect that the abdominal muscles that you use for singing would be very similar to the ones that a physio would be asking you to practice using for your your respiratory health so there's a real link there and also even things like vocal warm-ups and the consonant kind of practice you do in a choir where you go all of that is actually very similar when compared to pursed lip breathing exercises that a physio might assign you so there's a lot of singing mimicking breathing control and retraining exercise for people with respiratory disease but I think as Lauren said I would find from my end of the research that it's also the socialized the social isolation aspect the psychological emotional benefits so like we know that participating in any leisure activity that you enjoy is good for you on so many ways. It's not necessarily that singing or music is better than another leisure activity. It's for me, and it's kind of the baseline of all of my research is it's about finding out what the person's preferences are for their own kind of well-being. But what often happens with singing and music is that, and maybe the arts in general, is that you can break down the barriers a bit quicker. So you don't have to go into a room and talk to people. You can go into a room and paint or sing. So you're having a social experience when maybe talking is very difficult. So perhaps people with dementia or significant mental health issues where thoughts are disordered, you can engage with people and being in a group when you can't really very easily have a conversation with a person. What is the sense you're getting about the effects of uh, of this being technologically enabled at the moment, whether that is more or, or less useful practice, or whether there are approaches for overcoming it that could, that could be brought in? Yeah, well, we're looking at that. I mean, most of the, the music therapy researchers I work with have had to go online. <laughs> so we're kind of devising online programmes. So we're working at the moment, we have a group meeting to make music online who have chronic pain. We have we're working with individuals, dementia and their family carers who are isolated in rural areas and looking at bringing music therapy online to those people. But I think it's it's helpful that it's there. But I think as a member also of the music community in Ireland, I mean, it's just not the same as being in a room making music. There's a lack there, I think. You know, we're all turning to recorded music during the pandemic. You know, I, I'm having engaged in, in singing online myself, it's not the same. It can be, I think there are definitely benefits. Uh, you know, there's a sense of the self-expression in my own opinion. You know, I got to sing my heart out and it felt good for me. And I saw lots of other people doing it, but it's not the same as being in the room. But I don't know from a research point of view, that wouldn't be my area of expertise in terms of what that is and what that difference is. Um, but it's there and it's usable at the moment. It's opened us up, I think, a lot of us. Um, it's opened us up to the possibilities of technology where we would have been maybe resistant before. So I think it's really opened up how far you can reach people. Like, for example, in music therapy, you have to happen to live in certain parts of the country to get music therapy if you've had a stroke. Whereas now there's potential that we can offer that to people anywhere in the country through telehealth. 
Zooming out a bit, Shane Shapiro, your work with sound diplomacy has a focus on those, uh, we call them economic superpowers of culture and, and the ecosystems of music in particular. I mean, you look at what music could do for the inhabitants of regions and cities. Has the idea of what that could be been reorientated this past year? Uh, certainly. I, I think it has, purely from an economic kind of music industry perspective, which is where I come from. What has happened because of COVID poses an incredible opportunity because music has been undervalued in communities really forever. You know, we all kind of have a cognitive dissonance when we listen to a song or, or a piece of music that we love. Most people don't really understand what went into that moment happening, what went into the creation of music, especially the creation of music that is being disseminated or marketed for commercial reasons as well as personal reasons. And... COVID has given us an opportunity to explain the making of music better to those who consume music, but maybe passive listeners of music rather than active listeners of music. And what we're noticing is, is first off, as we say, Joni Mitchell was right. Um, you know, when you lose something, it becomes more valuable. And that when you can demonstrate what is no longer there in a place uh, that was there, but was being I would say unintentionally taken for granted in one way or another, either through depreciation of music education funding or um, a lack of understanding of the impact of music on public design or, or privately owned public squares or a lack of understanding of, of music as a business in relation to how cities think about how to attract and retain talent and, and so on. The argument's been made easier to say you need to be investing in music for a number of reasons, not just for the the health and well-being benefits of a community, but also, you know, for that community to continue to develop or to maybe recreate its identity in whatever way that it wants it to be created. And that could be multiplicitous. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm hopelessly optimistic. Sound Diplomacy is currently involved in creating a strategy for Belfast. Reading around your, your business, there is this suggestion that what you're doing is dealing with the health of a city. You know that, like so many other people, cities are sick and that this particular approach to music is a therapy for cities. Yeah, we see it from a, from a policy perspective is that the health of a city from a city's ability to enjoy music, a city's ability to create music, and then a city's ability to monetize music, both for um, local residents, businesses, but also the exchequer of the city in whatever way, is not optimized and wasn't optimized prior to COVID. So the health of a city in relation to music's ability to make a place better tends to not be strategized. It tends to be thought of ad hoc. So the work that we're doing in Belfast is we're actually looking at the role of music deliberately and intentionally across all the strategic policies that governs Belfast, planning, licensing, regeneration, health and well-being, industry development, tourism, and so on. And at the same time, we're mapping what we call mapping the music ecosystem, finding out where everything is and how it fits together, putting a number on it so those who need numbers to care about things will care about things. <laughs> and, um, and then identifying what needs to change. And there's a number of different ways. There's, there's mindset shifts, which could take generations, but there's also regulatory shifts in how we govern cities, how we govern place, how we manage land, and optimizing it to ensure that music 
plays as as vibrant and as active and as seamless a role as possible. Yeah, I mean, this is something that fascinates me, that there has been this long trend, and, and, you know, I'd like to hear what all of you have to say about this, this long trend to try and look at music and culture in general, as Shane says, in terms of its numbers, you know, what will be the specific economic benefit of it. And I'm feeling that COVID, one of the things it's doing is sort of changing how we might value music and moving the, the, the sort of official assessment from its economic impact to what its wellness impact might be in populations. Do you feel that a change happening? Does it touch on your own work? Hannah? Um, I think for me, I definitely personally feel like I value music more just in, in the way that I've lost it. And, you know, I miss it and want to get back to it. And I think that in kind of resetting my goals to be can I listen to music and sing along with it, uh, you know, without kind of losing my breath and making it through a whole song and, and kind of feeling those feelings, you know, letting emotions run through me. And it's kind of brought me back to the foundations in a way that I think has been pretty meaningful. And, you know, I also think that there's, there's a lot of interesting overlap with what everyone else here has talked about, even for the, the long COVID folks who haven't had respiratory issues. Like there's some theory that the the virus, um, you know, transports via the, the vagus nerve, which is, of course, one of the, the powerhouse nerves of the body. It, it kind of controls basically everything and um, singing and humming are, are really key, you know, exercises to kind of modulate that nerve a little. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's where I'm at. Hilary, this this idea that uh, you're interested in in social prescription, it seems like we've entered a phase where that there's an open door for those kind of approaches, which, I mean, in a way, they're very kind of utilitarian approaches to culture, saying, well, there is something that culture does very specifically, and, and here it is, and you can supply it to people in a way. I wish I was as optimistic as Shane on this. <laughs> Sadly, I'm not sure there is an open door. I think you know what Hannah said I think yes we will be rushing back to live music those of us who really miss it and maybe there will be you know a, a, an influx of sort of income and spending on live music and, and I hope that is the case but I'm not sure really that uh, there is that acceptance at a governmental or you know society level so for example in Ireland the musicians and artists are the last profession to be considered for COVID payment support for even consideration as a profession who were losing money during the pandemic. I mean, there were big discussions here about pubs, whether they should be open or closed. And publicans were saying, we're the last group to be considered, you know, and our income and all of that. But the musicians were quietly saying, hang on, but what about us? We haven't even been mentioned in the plans for reopening or any of that. So I think... I think as well, the social prescription still demands, unfortunately, when we talk about wellness and music, it still demands numbers and number crunching evidence that it's going to make a difference to people's health. So I would still have fights about, you know, persuading people that singing groups would be useful for people with long COVID. I mean, I feel looking at the way the health service is at the moment that we've lost all the extra things like music therapy like art therapy, like even activities, recreational activity, it was all stopped for the essential baseline care of pain medication and medical treatment. So whereas you would have had a lot of support if you had dementia and you were in hospital from other things like occupational therapy, music therapy, you don't get any of that now because nobody extra is in the building. 
you know, I, I have mixed feelings about it, about how positive the situation will be. I do hope that that need for culture will be accepted more than it has been, but I fear we may be taking steps backwards rather than forwards. Just in listening to Hillary talking about social prescribing, it made me realise um, a lesson that I've really taken away from the work that we're doing in, uh, in West Africa, which is the real difference in how people approach musical participation here versus in sub-Saharan Africa, where essentially when we started to work in that area, we looked at kind of the, the practice, the cultural practices that were just a commonplace everyday occurrence in daily life. And actually musical participation is just the most prevalent form of community interaction. It's how public health information is disseminated. There's absolutely no concept of there being people who can do music and people who cannot do music. And and actually that's fantastic in settings where uh, that are very resource poor there is no infrastructure there very little infrastructure around health but what there is is community organized activities that are not even not even really termed activities they're just sort of something that happens in the flow of everyday life and they're just grassroots and it's just been quite interesting because the whole idea of something similar in the UK or the US or whatever wouldn't really work and and I think that that's because of our, our different relationship to actually doing music together I mean it's very true to say that people can be passionate consumers of in a listening sense but in terms of where music gets particularly interesting is the active doing of music so Shane if, you, if when you're um, planning for a music ecosystem what kind of priority does participation take in it because I mean you've you've said maybe people don't understand the ecosystem that is involved in producing the experiences they consume but how how important is it for a city to get to move people from that consumption role to the more kind of engaged and participatory stance that, that Lauren is talking about there it's it's incredibly important and it starts with education you know a city that doesn't recognize music education or invest in it and i know that's a loaded thing because some cities are not responsible but but in the uk certainly uh, and in the us if there isn't a, a robust music education framework you're not building the participatory you know structures and strategies that you need and also you know those who are making decisions in cities tend to not look like the breadth of people who live in those cities, especially in the UK. The average age of a councillor is 58. Most are white. And music is all things to all people. So it's very, very difficult to, you know, to be prescriptive in this regard, right? It has to, we, we're thinking it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of thinking about policy. It's a way of thinking about investing in music as infrastructure. That's what we would hope for. That's what we're working on in Belfast and we've done in lots of other cities. Um, and, it, and it comes back to recognition. When something exists in policy, it needs to literally be re- referenced and recognized in language. One of the challenges that we've seen, especially when it comes to music therapy, music and wellness, music and care homes, is the initiatives are ad hoc. They're not built into policy. So it's applying for a research grant, then doing something related to that research grant, and then the project ends. You know, there isn't a consistency to this. And that is because that has nothing to do with COVID. That's just the way that we view music. 
And it's the way that we have grown our urban and built environment as it relates to music. And this is not something that I plan on changing overnight. But I, the, the reason I'm optimistic is because COVID gives us an opportunity to argue differently for what needs to change. We can point to something that doesn't exist anymore that did and that made someone money. And the best way to get someone to change is to demonstrate to them how they are losing money. But most of the people that I have to convince simply do not have the same sensitivities maybe towards art as wellness. And my job is to not preach to the choir, it's to rewrite the hymn sheet. And I always have to speak to a person knowing that they're not going to see it the way I see it. I think we've in some ways won the social argument. I think there's, there is very little uh, pushback about the value of music, the value of art and wellness. Now it's the investment in growing that value. We haven't won that argument yet. Well, I, I guess it takes us from that sort of art as pharmaceutical to art as infrastructure kind of uh, view, which is so it's comfortable ground in a way. I'm, I'm just thinking about you rewriting the hymn sheet, and then I'm wondering if we're all going to be singing from the same one. The metaphors are piling up thick and heavy, which suggests that's all we have time for. That's your complete dose of the culture file debate for this time. I'd like to thank all our guests, Hannah Davis, Lauren Stewart, Hilary Moss, and Shane Shapiro. Bye now. Goodbye. Bye. It's a real pleasure. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.